Welcome to the Joan Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Vittengel. The purpose of Joan is to draw light towards mental health, to bring awareness and real stories to the trauma that most everyone endures at some point in life, from depression to postpartum depression to anxiety and eating disorders, PTSD, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, addiction, the list goes on and on. Joan is meant to be a place of honesty and connection. Through the darkest days of my struggles, I'd never felt so alone, and I was convinced there was no way out. If you're feeling this way, I hope this podcast helps you to truly understand that you're not alone and that there is so much light at the end of the tunnel. The truth is, there is no right way to heal. But this podcast was created to inspire you to take your own steps towards healing and stepping into your most authentic self. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Joan. Today, I am speaking with my friend, Jack Lewis, who, as I said, is has become a very good friend of mine. She's also my, um, my Vedic meditation teacher. She came into my life actually you know, very serendipitously during my, um, when I was pretty, pretty dark in, in my anxiety and panic attacks. So, um, she's a very special person. We talk about her personal experience with anxiety, with postnatal depression, a whole bunch of things. We also of course move into her journey into spirituality and meditation. Jack is one of those people who really doesn't believe in the woo-woo of spirituality. You know, she really supports like the modern approach to it. And it's just very realistic. And I really, really appreciate her, her take on it. And, um, we'll go through, you know, her whole story and we'll talk a lot about meditation. And, uh, if you're interested in learning, it is an incredible tool for any kind of mental health or trauma. Um, and if you happen to be in London, she will be actually leading a course at my flat um, in just a couple of weeks. So if you're listening to this before January 19th, 2019, then uh, you can either get in touch with me, you can check out her website, The Broad Place. Uh, I will link that below and we would love to have you. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm here with my friend Jack Lewis of The Broad Place, um, which I'm going to kind of let you explain that. I think you'll probably do a much better job of, of that. So can you tell us um, a little bit about yourself? We'll get into The Broad Place later and talk about how that might be able to to assist people in their journeys. But um, yeah, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you live, etc. <laughs> okay. Um, so I live in Palm Beach in Sydney, which is a really northern tip surrounded by water, a little tiny peninsula of land. And that's in Sydney in Australia. And we spend about eight months of the year here and then interspersed with lots of travel. We spend a lot of time moving around the globe. And uh, my daughter's 12. My husband is also my business partner, which is amazing and challenging. (laughs) And we have two rescue dogs. And life is 
I would say I would say life is very full and very um, modern. So I, I teach meditation now as one of the key things I do, and I think a lot of people have this perception that oh, I must kind of like levitate in linen, and <laughs> it's not the case. Um, so <laughs> yeah, but um, what else can I say? There's my I actually started. I started out as an interior architect. I studied design. So I've always worked in creative industries and I've always been drawn to incredibly hectic, um, very, very in Ayurveda, there's a a dosha called Pitta, which is that hot, fiery driven. So I've always been in hospitality and advertising and industries where it's been, um, you know, you've got to be all in to do well in them and it's highly competitive and, um, I would say I spent quite a bit of time being a human fire blanket, um, putting out little fires everywhere and as well as creating incredible things, experiences, um, and projects. But it was, it was a very intense, uh, couple of, uh, well, almost 15 years in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and how old are you? If you don't mind me asking. I turned 38 on the 2nd of September. So I'm 37. I actually just sounded like, I just sound like a little kid, you know, when they're like, I'm four and three quarters. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So before we get into everything, what by definition have you struggled with um, in your life? I have struggled with anxiety is, is being the underpinning um, for a lot of, uh, that's probably been my biggest struggle. Yeah. It's definitely anxiety and coping with high pressure situations. So I kind of like to start out by um, asking about your childhood because um, as we know, it turns out that a lot of our trauma or a lot of our experience now in our, in, as we grow as we get older, um, is kind of shaped from childhood experiences, right? Which is always kind of a funny question because prior to me really starting all of this work, I was like, well, I had like such a nice childhood. I don't understand how my, my life could have been ever affected by my childhood. But, <laughs> but uh, I interviewed Lacey, whom if you... If anyone listening has listened to prior episodes, hers is amazing, actually. But um, a lot of Lacey's, and Lacey's a friend of um, mine and Jack's, and um, a lot of her work goes into um, kind of diving into childhood experiences. So I just kind of like to get a background on what your childhood was like. You know, it's such a good question, and it's a question that no one ever asks. Um, my childhood, so I had I had a really similar situation to what you described in that I looked back on my childhood. And if, you know, just on the top line, I would have said, oh, it was brilliant. You know, I was raised by two parents who completely and utterly believed in me, who both strived for, um, creativity, who, um, were really aligned in who they were, who gave me the utmost confidence. Like there was nothing that I wanted to do or tried to do that they said, oh, that's a little silly, or I don't think you can do that. They were insanely supportive. And I had what I would call a bit of a free range childhood. So I grew up in um, actually where I live now. I've moved back to where I grew up. And in the time, I mean, at the time when I was growing up up here, um, people rode horses to school and it's, it's set on the coast. Yeah. So I, sw- I swam and I surfed and I, I, I kind of, my memories of childhood, it's sort of, I sort of did what I wanted. Um, 
And then, uh, so I, you know, trekked a lot. I hiked a lot. I used to leave early in the morning with a little backpack on and go, you know, running through the fruit orchards and, and from a little age. And then, um, I, I would med. I didn't know I was doing it, but I was med. I would meditate. I would um, sit by the ocean. I was very, very drawn to and soothed by nature. I used to hike through the national reserve here, and it was really beautiful. And so it was really interesting when I then was older and started diving into like what is the root of this anxiety because technically you know I was I would have said there's nothing wrong you know like I I have a beautiful life but my brother was also born disabled and that happened he was born when I was three and there's like a whole other flip side to my childhood which was I was also a really sick kid and I was (sighs) it's hard to describe it when you grow up with someone that is sort of almost on the brink of death and you're never sure how long they're going to be here for. And the fragility of that is, is so incredible long-term because it teaches you, it's taught me everything that I know and how I teach now, um, about being present to what is as opposed to future projecting and, and stressing about the past as well. But at the time it really imprinted in me this sense of ongoing fragility. So even just going on a family holiday was hard work because my mum was a terrible flyer. She was anxious. My dad is, um, you know, really, really driven and they're both, you know, they're both big personalities and, you know, just getting on a plane was incredibly traumatic because my brother would refuse to go in a wheelchair and my mum and dad would have a fight. And then, you know, he would be upset and I would be in tears. And it was just, it was just like, there was just these moments of like high tension. And I think it just built into my nervous system on one level. And also, um, I started to become nervous and controlling. Like, I wonder if I can just tick the right boxes, then everything will be okay and settled and developed quite a bit of an OCD um, streak, which has presented in lots of amazing ways in my life, but is also can be, I, I, I've identified over the time. That's where the anxiety is coming from. You know, it's, it's sort of, I always imagine it's, it's like a geyser that kind of like shoots out. And sometimes if it's made, if it's projected into creativity, it's unreal. But if it's, if there's too much pressure, I just go to pieces. Yeah. 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 So, so when did you start identifying your anxiety? Oh God. Um, probably about 18. I I think far too long into my having anxiety, I started to identify my anxiety, but I was also really bullied as a kid. And so there was a lot of reasons that, you know, particularly my, my family, my immediate family would go, Oh, well, that's why Jack's behaving that way is because, you know, I was being bullied or, um, I also, what was the bullying like? Mean, really nasty, mean girl bullying. Um, I was picked on for anything and everything. I was such a, I was real thin because um, I, I, I had asthma. I was really sick all the time. I couldn't have sleepovers at friends' houses because I was allergic to, like, everything. You know, if they, if they had a cat, I was shot. Um, and so – and I was also – um, really vulnerable. Like I was like a little, a little paper shell, you know, like, um, and so I just didn't handle, it took me a long time to develop a thick skin, but I know a lot of people that really regret being bullied, but for me, it developed a, it, over, over the, over the long term. it developed a ferocity, um, and a strength and the, the absolute determination to protect those that are in need and the vulnerable. Yeah. 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 
humans are just kids in general. I just think is so incredible and awful simultaneously. I know it's so wild, but don't you think, I mean, again, it comes down to like this conditioning, right? Like where we kind of are taught to behave sort of, or we mirror whatever, whatever it is. But I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if, do you believe that people are, can just be bad people or do you think it comes, do you believe it comes down to conditioning? This is such a good question. Aaron and I were talking about this the other day because I got really bewildered by the behavior of someone that we know. And, you know, he said, look, like my worldview is that everyone at their core is a good human being and everyone has been conditioned to a degree. And no, it's learned behavior, um, their behavior. And so I, I think that, um, sometimes incorrectly that I can really, like, if I can just tap into the best part of that person, then, you know, they'll sort of see the light in inverted commas. Or if I can just, um, you know, be in a space or be supportive with someone while they're going through a hard time, then it's not actually, it's the situation. It's not them. Whereas, and so then, but, but that worldview means that you spend a bit of the time going, Oh, <laughs> people act, you know, like human beings. Whereas Aaron's worldview is really different. He's like, you know what? Humans are humans and they're pretty awful uh, most of the time. And then when they're not, he's delighted. So he spends most of his time never being bewildered and just being pleasantly surprised. Whereas I spend a little bit of my time going, Whoa, wow. Okay. Um, I didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, okay. So we'll go back to 18 and kind of starting to identify your anxiety. So I started with the anxiety. It was presenting in a range of ways. Um, some strange behavior, like weed controlling behavior. Now I look back on it. Um, but I also just couldn't put a finger on what it was. And then I started doing a little bit of reading and I started doing yoga classes and that was 20 years ago and no one did yoga 20 years ago. And it was really hard to find classes, but I'd found, and I wish I'd kept it. I don't know what it was, but I I came across some book in a secondhand store and it was all about yoga as in unification of body and mind. And something that I noticed when I was feeling anxious was I'd feel like I was coming out of my body and I, I was losing, which is, you know, in the amygdala, um, starts firing and the fight flight response goes, you start to lose that, you know, you're essentially not getting enough oxygen. So there's, I would get that feeling of like the palms of my hands would feel like they were, I was losing sensation and feeling dizzy and not grounded. And they started describing this in this book around our need, uh, our human need for grounding and connection to the body. And so I sought out some yoga classes and started doing those. And then in that they started um, my teachers would talk about, we do a little bit of meditation and I really liked it. And it reminded me of what I did when I was a kid, which was coming back into myself. And that was when I started to realize that maybe it was something that was mental and not circumstantial because there was technically, I mean, I've always been very lucky. I've always mostly led a very beautiful life. There's been lots of shit stuff that's gone on, but not, not to the degree that I, not, reflective of how I was feeling. And so that's when I started really looking into it. And I had some good experiences in that. And I had some horrific experiences. Um, when I was about 20, I went to, I was in it going through a particularly bad phase and I went to the, there's a big hospital here and they had a specific anxiety clinic. And I thought, Oh, that would be a good place for me to go. And I, you know, my GP had referred it. So I went and ate it was for me so indicative of why we need to be having these conversations because 
I walked into the room and there's very old, like very old, physically old and like crotchety um, gentleman opened the door and he was like, oh, come in, come in, kind of like. And I, I was instantly like fostered and I walked in and as he closed the door, he was like, sit down. And then he goes, oh, you don't mind if one of the students that's studying anxiety sits in, do you? Okay, good. And he was, he was a guy my age. And I just was so confronted and embarrassed by a talking about my emotions, but B, um, being in, it was the whole thing was handled badly. And he said to me, so what's the problem? And I said, well, that's the thing. I don't know that there isn't a problem per se, but I feel terrible all the time. Like my, and my thoughts are, I can't stop them. I am sure I feel out of breath. I get nervous sometimes stepping out of my car. I, you know, I was describing my anxiety and he goes, stop, sorry. So what's the problem? And I was like, no, no, that, that, that's it. I, I don't know why I'm feeling like this. And he literally put his hand in my face and said, okay, just stop. And wrote me a prescription for Xanax, handed it to me and went, okay, we're done. And the whole appointment I think took under 15 minutes and I walked out of there and managed to get home and I went and fulfilled the prescription and I went home and I took my first little Xanax tablet and burst in my, my flatmate came home and I burst into tears and she was just like, what the, (laughs) that is so unethical. I can't believe that happened to you. Um, I don't think you should be taking Xanax. And I had no idea what Xanax was, but I was like, it's going to make me feel better. And I took it for a week and I'm not anti-medication, but there was absolutely no support systems that were put in place for me taking this medication. Oh, I was just like, wee. (laughs) But all the thoughts stopped. And by that, I mean, all the thoughts stopped. So I wasn't feeling anything. And then after a week, my, um, my, my, my best friend who I was living with sat me down and, and also my, my boyfriend at the time, he was like, you're not you. And I just thought if I'm going to have to deal with this and not be the essence of who I am, this isn't going to work. So I, I, I chucked it away. Um, and, but then, but that was your one experience with medication. Was that, that was my, yeah, was my only experience with medication. Okay. Yep. And then I just went deep. I went deep into spirituality at that point. I just was like, there's got, there's got to be other humans out there that can, that are having this experience and that can describe it in a way that makes sense to me. So I started studying Buddhism and Taoism, Taoism in particular, because of the alignment with nature resonated with me so deeply. Um, and also Ayurveda. Um, and I started learning about the doshas and that I was incredibly Vata aggravated. And then uh, there was so many things. I mean, I was highly caffeinated. I was doing a ton of recreational drugs. I was partying really hard. I was living on about four hours sleep a night. Like, it just was a recipe for anxiety. And what <laughs> age was this? This was me in my very early 20s. Okay. Yeah. Um, so tell me if, was there, um, were there any particular instances that you feel were your darkest? Because can I tell you that, and this is kind of surprising to me sometimes when I think about it, but um, I've spoken about publicly about, you know, when, how suicidal thoughts started coming up for me, um, which felt wildly terrifying. You know, I think that they come up in different ways for different people. I have a friend who was depressed and experiencing them, but she wasn't scared by them. I think for me, and I'm sure you, um, with the anxiety side, it felt like a loss of control. So that was just terrifying to me. Um, but it wasn't until you were in London um, I don't know, maybe how, not that long ago. What it was, was a year ago. Oh, was it a year ago? 
Oh, no, no, it was in January. My apologies. Okay, yeah. It was eight months ago. Um, that we were sitting down chatting and you, and we were talking about all of this and you were like, oh, when did the suicidal thoughts start? And I, when, and you said that and I was like, whoa, I just remember being shocked that you had just said it so openly. And it's crazy to think that, that that was only eight months ago and that it now is even so much more normalized for me. But I was like, oh, whoa, like I had to become comfortable talking about it. But you just said it's so nonchalant and like, I, I, I mean, I was, I was, I loved it. I was so happy to have you say that. I'm so glad. Because of how I, intense I think my experience was. But tell, tell me about yours. And it's the aloneness. Well, it's the aloneness that I think. So I never had suicidal thoughts when I had my anxiety, but I got really bad postnatal depression. Oh, I wasn't diagnosed okay. Okay. until until it was I was on the tail end of it oh wow and I've okay. never yeah and I I was I was terrifying myself um I frequently thought about driving my car into a truck and taking mine and Marley's life I I would I it was the darkest place the shame I felt around having those thoughts prevented me from telling anyone I was having them yeah 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 so the shock was the shock was when I eventually got diagnosed with postnatal depression and as they're asking me the question you know as you sort of it's a process to be diagnosed with this kind of thing and I was on the tail end so I wish I had taken medication for it because it's quite easily balanced um through the neurochemistry but I I was, I was, I saying to like a couple of close friends, I actually lost my shit when I realized that I had personal depression. Once a, a psychiatrist said to me, they, it, it all made perfect sense, but I got really angry at a few people that were close to me. Um, namely my, my husband, my mom, my, my best friends. And, and they were so shocked. They're like, you just seemed like you had it so together. What are you even talking about? And that was a big wake up call for me because I realized that you can't until you talk about this kind of stuff and um, bring it into the light. It just sits in the shadow. And there's this beautiful, um, uh, in the Vedas, there's this beautiful little um, area of, the, of study that is about that there is no such thing really as shadow. It's just that which is not, has, has not been brought into the light. Mm. And I, you know, there's no actual darkness. It just hasn't had a light shone on it yet. That's all. And then I decided to become really committed to talking about it. And also the work I do now is that I do talk to a lot of people that are in a place where they want to talk about this kind of stuff. So, um, I'm glad I, I'm probably almost too like, really? So when do you have suicidal thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Um, a bit too like, um, blase, not blase, but like bold about it. But I, I just, you know what the thing is as well, that's been really enlightening for the work I do now is the amount of guys that don't talk about this stuff, like men that will have panic attacks. And I think women are quite much more comfortable in talking about their, their feelings just as a general rule. And then, um, but the amount of men I see who are like, I think I'm the only person who has this experience experience i'm like that's you and every single guy that walks through this door you know i know i know i would love to eventually i would eventually love to kind of shift this to i mean i think i would love to get some men on is is really what i would love to do because um yeah it's definitely a big issue amongst men because i mean come on there's no way that they don't feel this the way that i mean maybe in some to some degree but they must feel the similar similar things that we that we do right they feel all the same things. Aaron's best friend, um, his name is Chance, and he's just a remarkable human being. And 
he became a quadriplegic four years ago in an accident and he is now doing this incredible he speaks and he particularly is talking to teens and kids because he has this um, little motto where he says his anxiety was more crippling than becoming a cripple. And I didn't even know he had anxiety and he had crippling anxiety. And now when he talks about it and about his inability to sit, he was terrified of sitting with his own thoughts. And so he drove himself into the ground with work and partying and socializing and just doing every like occupying every single moment every like filling all the space with things so that he didn't have to be with his thoughts and that that was anxiety for me as well and it's funny because you then go and do all the behaviors that actually make you more anxious yeah exactly I know yeah so um so how old I want to talk about this postnatal depression a little bit more um how old how long did it set in okay so how old were you when you had Marley and then how long did it did it take for it to kind of settle in the depression after you gave birth? Uh, it was a couple of months. So I gave birth to Molly when I was only 25, which I feel I felt was young at the time. And I look back and I still feel was really young for me. Um, I wasn't really interested in having kids and I'd been told that I couldn't have kids. And, and you so were she married, was right? I wasn't, not at the time. I'd been with um, my partner for seven years at that stage. Okay. Yeah. And I, um, so I found out I was pregnant, which was nothing short of a miracle at the time because I was told that I couldn't, couldn't have kids. Um, and it just seemed like, oh, well, I guess that's, you know, the, a gift that that's what's supposed to happen. So we were pretty unprepared and it really threw a bit of a, um, it was like a bowling ball came through with life because we, we didn't have any information. You know, like I've got friends who are uh, in their late thirties and they're they're planned and they're ready and they're um, they've got infrastructure around their lives around what that might look like. Whereas I was still in the heyday of <laughs> ripping it up um, and and you know had a design agency and had all these plans and then it was like oh and I'm having a baby. Um, so I thought that you got postnatal depression the minute the baby was born. Um, and I remember the, the lady from the hospital, one of the ladies came and checked on me and I, I felt amazing. I I loved having Lali when she was a baby and I was like, this is great, you know? And I was, I just felt so positive and happy and she was a brilliant baby until she was about eight weeks old or three months. And then she stopped sleeping and it was sleep. So I was blaming it on sleep deprivation and also just the sickening reality of this situation isn't going anywhere. Like I've been able to talk my way, work my way in and out of everything in my life. And all of a sudden there's just this small screaming thing that you cannot control uh, and you can't make do anything. And it seems like it's in pain because it's crying and you can't make it stop. It's heartbreaking. And um, she was the most happy baby in the day and adorable. And then come night it was like, she was possessed. Um, that was really hard. My husband, um, my ex-husband now, but he didn't cope with it. Neither of us coped, um, with the situation at all. And, you know, we were struggling financially. I mean, I remember I could afford to get one or two coffees a week out. That was it. And it, it was just a really, there was a lot of pressure on. So I just kept blaming all of that. I was like, well, it's obviously because I'm not sleeping and we're doing it tough at the moment. And, um, you know, I, like I was, ter- like I was, I was worried about putting food on the table. Um, and I was worried we had a mortgage and I was worried we were going to go under and we weren't going to be able to pay it off. And, you know, we were sort of like stretching the limits in, in every area. And, 
Um, that's, I just kept blaming it on that stress. You know, I'm just stressed because of this stuff, but I was crying, you know, anywhere from four to five hours a day. Um, I would cry doing the washing. I was crying and changing her nappy, but all very secretive. So I'd like put on my makeup and wear something beautiful and walk out of the house. (laughs) So how long did it last for? Oh, until she was about 11 months old. Okay. And what, and and how did you come out of it? Um, it was a combination of things. I, as soon as I, I saw a particular, um, a therapist and it was actually some, I remember going to get a checkup and, um, her pediatrician recommended that I see someone. So I think it was starting to become a bit glaringly obvious. Um, and then I went to see a therapist and they ran me through a series of, um, questions, um, that took quite a while. And I was, I remember even as they were asking them, I was like, Ooh, this is so, it was starting to become blatantly obvious, which for me, the, um, I don't even know if you'd use the word diagnosis sounds really serious, but for me, the discovery that it was just a thing that could be managed actually lifted me out of it. I was like, Oh, and it all made perfect sense. It was like, it was like Tetris, like all the pieces just went ding, 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 ding together. And, you know, and it also timed in with, then she started sleeping and we celebrated her first birthday um, and everything kind of just took a turn from there. Um, and also I was at the tail end of it. So they hadn't recommended that, um, you know, they sort of asked questions about, and now, and three months ago and six months ago and nine months ago, and you, you cycle through all of those. And I realized that I was actually in a much better state at that point. So I decided not to take the medication, but yeah, something clicked over once I realized what it was. Isn't that why I actually thought I was going insane? Yeah, right. I felt the same way um, when I was, especially when the suicidal thoughts started. I was like, "What is going on here?" Like me, like I, like me. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about taking my life. Like what? What? This doesn't. I just, I, and I just couldn't even control. It was so scary. I just felt so out of control of my thoughts. Um, it's terrifying. It's, I had a really bad, um, reaction to an anesthetic, some anesthetic. I had a anesthesia, sorry. Um, I had an oper- a little operation and I reacted really badly to the procedure. And I remember just the, I, all my hormones got out of balance and I, again, same thing flooded with like, it was like crazy person thoughts. I was like, these aren't even mine. They were so dark and hideous. Um, and I went, I knew what to do then at that point. And I, I had like, <laughs> by that stage in my life, I had enough people. I went straight to, I see this incredible acupuncturist and I was like, I, there's something like there's something going, I've got an imbalance, a massive imbalance. And I went straight and had my blood work done. And I did a few things to, to see if I could get a handle on it because I was like, not again, I'm not going through this again. Like the, the, cra- the, the, the dark it's, it's a, like you described it when you're like, I don't know whose thoughts these are. Do you remember what some of the thoughts were? It was, yeah, absolutely. They were, it was like someone speaking to me through another voice and it was just end it, make it go away. You can do this. You've got this. Just, just let's call it a day. Um, and I started having these weird fantasies about if I was to kill myself, how would I kill myself? Um, and you know what? Um, on a side note, I just, out of the blue, my friend sent me an article about the, and I'm not going to get any of the names wrong, and I'm so, uh, right, and I'm so sorry, but there was that young girl who was 18 who tried to commit suicide, and she 
um, shot her her face, um, and it the, she destroyed her whole face. And she recently had a face transplant. And I, she sent me an article on Instagram, and I was reading the story, crying because it was just the most horrific and awe inspiring story. And the comments from people going, well, people who think about suicide or even want to commit suicide, you know, shouldn't be allowed to live. And I realized that there is an absolute lack of education around what it means to have those thoughts and, and that, and also the stigma attached to it. And I think one of the reasons I felt so ashamed about being, when I had this like terrible anxiety or, um, postnatal depression was, I also used to think suicide is a really selfish thing to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's a ter- you know that, that's just the people who can't keep their shit together. I had no idea about what it felt like, and so I think for me, when I did then have those thoughts, I was horrifically ashamed at at the experience, and like, would just pull yourself together. That's what you've always said people need to do, and you're not. Yeah, right. I know the exact it's exact same thing for me. I was like, wait, wait like. What, how, how, how is this, again, it was just, it was, there was so much shame. Like, how is this happening to me? What's going on? You know, really going into quite a victim mode, but it's intense and there are chemical imbalances. And, you know, I believe so much of a lot, a lot of anxiety and depression and a lot of, um, just suffering, um, today is caused from people being out of touch with their, I say their high, higher, higher selves, um, which we can kind of, we'll get into, you know, ways of reconnecting with our true selves, but the chemical imbalances are very real. <laughs> and uh, Very real. Yeah. And also um, prejudices and biases. So I had a lot of ideas around, because I've always been a super hyper, happy-go-lucky extrovert, and I had this huge, unco- like that had to be uncovered, bias and prejudice and all these ideas around, oh, but people like me, in inverted commas, we're not sad people. You know, like they're like I know depressed sad people. I had all these weird ideas. I don't know where they came from, but that, you know, because I was extroverted or because I, you know, was generally generally speaking, if I wasn't anxious, I was having the time of my life. So I, there was not a clear alignment for me. Um, and I think a lot of people have, uh, they're carrying onto a lot of baggage um, around what it might mean to have any kind of mental challenge in a moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, okay. So from here, so you were, so through all of this, you were, you, you were still kind of, um, exploring your spiritual practice. Yeah. Oh yeah. And the, um, Vedic meditation I learned just after Molly was born, she was still, she was still tiny. She was walking, but she was around one or two. And that's when I got really serious about it. That was, that was, I crawled through the door to learn that technique. I was trying everything and a friend of mine recommended it. He was like the fifth person to recommend it. Um, and I literally found a teacher, rang the teacher and learned that day, um, and started the process. It was just that there was amazing synchronicity And so I started a course right away and that really gave me a door into the truth of who I was, which then paved the way for me to completely change how I lived my life. Mm -hmm. You know, what's funny is you kind of came into my life at quite an interesting time as well. Um, And you and Vedic meditation, I should say. So Vedic meditation is what um, Jack teaches 
And I was actually kind of in the height of, uh, I had just started kind of having all of my crazy thoughts and my panic attacks were getting really out of control. Um, so it was kind of one of those things that it's funny to look back and think, wow, that really, it, it, and it happened randomly for me. I didn't plan to do your course. Um, it just, you guys were borrowing rugs or something and Mel had put us in touch and I just sat for one of the courses. So it was kind of, you know, one of those things that I feel the universe was kind of handing to me. Like, yeah, very much so. Cause it was like your life's about to get really out of control. So here's something that you can maybe use to keep your shit together a little bit. Um, but yeah, that, I remember that being just such a wild experience. Um, and you know, it's interesting because I wouldn't have known having met you the first time. I think you learned with Lacey, didn't you? Didn't you guys learn at the same time? I think you learned in the same course or the, she learned, or you learned the week after actually. Um, but it's funny because everyone that I met, I remember because that was the first time I was teaching Los Angeles and everyone I met was like super like happy, good, lucky and awesome and, um, really positive and, um, you know, very LA. And then obviously, you know, you develop a deeper relationship with, um, all your students and, you know, a lot become, you know, closer friends and, a lot and you know it's funny like how people present because when I met you I would have gone oh wow like you know I would never assumed you had a, a single negative thought run through your brain which is obviously not true because no one has that experience but you know we just never know what's going on for someone in that first I know, moment I know that's a thing you never know what someone's experiencing ever so tell us continue talking about your like the exploration, I guess, into Vedic meditation, how you got into teaching and, um, and I, I, you know, I guess how you have avoided, you know, somebody asked, um, how do you avoid relapse? Um, and yeah, tell us how you, what you, what you started to do to take care of yourself. Were there, so you started the Vedic meditation, were there other things that have really, really helped you on your journey? Are yes, there other definitely. modalities, other, you know, go into that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I, once I, so I think one of the key things is to have a daily practice, uh, no matter what it is. I think that when something, if we really want to rewire the brain and create a new platform for the body to be able to let go of all the old buildup. So in Sanskrit, they're called samskaras. And they're basically these little cellular grooves that sit within the nervous system. And they're a printout of our emotional responses to situations. And we're all carrying around. It's, you know, otherwise known as emotional baggage. And we're all carrying this stuff around. And if we're not, if we're saving up to, oh, you know, like I'll release all of that and balance myself and become more tuned into who I am once a week, uh, sorry, once a year on a retreat or um, once a month when I go and have that amazing, you know, session and treatment with that healer or on Sundays, once a week when I meditate, it's just not enough to do, to have transformational effect on a long, uh, long lasting scale. So for me, a daily practice is, is, it's what I teach. It's what I do. I think it's everything. Um, and also understanding that, you know, I hear so many people say, and teachers in that teach in the same tradition that I do that say that, you know, oh, this is all you need to do. You know, you just, you just learn this because it is very transformational Vedic meditation. It's a mantra based practice. You do it for 20 minutes, twice a day. Ideally, most people do it 20 minutes, once a day, <laughs> and then, and then attempt to do the second one. But um, you know, it's frequently sold in as this silver bullet. You know, you just do that 
and watch as your life falls into place. And, you know, a lot of people have that experience. They really do, but a lot also don't have that experience and they need other tools and techniques and knowledge and philosophy to layer in because it's like, you know, you, you're taking out a lot of that, which is no longer relevant out of the nervous system and, and out of the mind. And so nourishing that and feeding it and fueling it with that, which is going to form your new way of being in the world is incredibly important. So I think that for me personally, some of the most important work I've done has been getting very clear on my values and ensuring that I'm aligned with them at all times. I know that whenever I've wavered from my values, my anxiety comes back. It's like now that's one of my markers is I'm, I'm living out of alignment and also understanding that my values are very different to other people's values and being okay with that and still staying true to my values. Um, And I also think that like diet for me anyway, makes a huge impact. And it's funny, like in Ayurveda, they've been saying this for 5,000 years that the gut, uh, which they call the Nadi brain, uh, is the second brain. And that, that, you know, for thousands and thousands of years, they're like, of course, like if your gut health and your gut bacteria isn't right. I mean, in Japan as well, you know, pickles um, and ferments have always been a part of daily eating. And, you know, now in the West, we're starting to get the science to back that up and to go, oh my God, did you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of these ancient traditions, um, and if you look at there's there's so many lineages that have drawn on ensuring that the, the gut health is being taken care of. Um, and I, for me, whenever I'm, you know, I can, I can, I, there's a lot of freedom. I'm, I've got a pretty solid nervous system these days and I've got a lot of freedom in how I am with that. But if I push the boat out too far, um, like too, too long away, not enough green vegetables, I get dehydrated. I over caffeinate. Yeah. You know what? I'm a mess. Yep. And also things like hacking sleep. For me, there is no sleep hack. I just need eight hours a night. Um, and <laughs> I've tried everything. I became obsessed with, you know, polyphasic and biphasic sleeping patterns. I did for a month. I did the Uberman um, sleeping um, technique, which is where you sleep for 20 minutes every four hours. And I, I've tried really? I on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. then I, I, mean, I, I, yeah, I'm a big experimenter. I love to see what's going to work for me. And for me personally, nothing beats just actually getting a solid night's sleep. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, and all of the fundamentals, I, I've seen so many practitioners for various things. And at the end of the day, if I'm not hydrated, not getting enough sleep, not eating, eating enough, then, then, uh, of the good stuff, um, and living in like salt and vinegar crisps in an airport, then yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. none of that stuff is going to help. You know, I can have needles stuck in me, um, you know, things waved over me, um, you know, crystals hung all over my body. And at the end of the day, those are the fundamentals. <laughs> so who, what are your regular practice? What kinds of, um, so, so you do acupuncture, it sounds like. I do acupuncture. I do. I love acupuncture. I do karate. I practice karate. Mm, um, I love that. I love that you do karate. Yeah. It's just unreal. And, um, for me, anything that combines mind, body and spirit. So there's for me, karate, for some people, it's just a physical pursuit, but for me, it's a way of understanding myself, my ego, where my tendencies, you, it's like having a big fat mirror shoved in your face every single time you step into the dojo because you start to recognize, um, you know, what you do under pressure and how you cope when you're feeling insecure or, um, 
you know, like I, I, I recognized very early on after studying, I've studied with a lot of teachers and teachers, um, when they have students need to keep themselves in check because, you know, it's a, it's an incredibly, it's a privileged position. Um, a lot of people come to you, they want to hear what you have to say. They take it as a face, you know, they really believe you and there can be a little tiny bit of idolizing that happens. And if you're not keeping your own ego in check and understanding yourself, that becomes incredibly dangerous. And I've seen the ego grow out of control in so many of my teachers. And so I have really, um, had to develop things to keep myself in check. And for me, karate is one of them. I just get belted around. So amazing. I love that. I love that you do karate. Yeah. I look, it's, it can become, um, like with any, anything, any modality at all. Um, I think you need to have other things that you do outside of it. Um, so, you know, I, I really look outside of just the, um, the Vedic lineage and I very much, you know, have mentors in different areas. Um, mentorship actually is one of the most valuable things I also think I've ever done. I was really fortunate when I was young, I was, um, 18, 19 studying interior architecture and, um, an incredible interior architect um, asked um, and volunteered to be my mentor. And it was such a gift. And it taught me the value of having someone that you trust that you can bounce ideas around with. And so I've always made sure that I've had mentors and people that I can turn to and be honest with that aren't necessarily like they're not therapists or anything like that. They're just people that you know and trust that have do- are doing what you're doing and doing it in an incredible way. Um, even if it's in a parallel industry, but there's the same thirst or the same, and um, you know, I, for me, I look for someone who's very earnest, um, isn't looking for validation through a mentoring experience. Like they, do, that's not why they're doing it. Um, and that they've, they're also living a life very aligned with their values. And that has been profound. And I, I, th- I worry that mentorship has been is being lost in society so do you still have mentors I do I do I have a lot of mentors in different areas and I draw on them in particular moments in time and then also just the other one is community um having amazing friends like that don't even necessarily work in the same areas. I think um, a lot of the time people go, oh, community must be, um, it's either got to be friends or it's got to be people I work with, but there can be a blending of those things and having people that you can turn to and honestly say, I, I'm, I'm losing my shit. I don't know what I, I, I'm, I'm, I've got too much on my plate or I don't have anything on my plate and I don't know what to do about it. Or, um, you know, that you can voice situations with in a, in a sacred space, in a quiet, comfortable space where, you know, you can sound things out and they, they can help you. So that's been, that's also been really, really profound. And I, I yearn, if there's ever a turning down on the volume of that, I really yearn for it. You know, the conversation that we had that night when we're in London that, you know, was hours and hours long. Um, and we're with one of my friends and, you know, that, that, that gives me fuel and I will be lit up from that for months to come. It's like a, my soul is like, oh. <laughs> I know. I know. That was really nice. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about diet. So do you, do you follow um, an Ayurvedic diet? Um, so I, this is interesting because Ayurveda at its core is really eating in alignment with what you need intuitively in a moment in time and also living in uh, eating in alignment with the seasons. So yes, I do, but it's frequently misinterpreted as 
uh, vegetarian Indian food. And um, so on that regard, no, I don't. But yes, I do um, eat uh, at the, the core philosophy. And there's a lot of core philosophies, like macrobiotics has a similar core philosophy. Um, if you look at a lot of different um, ancient um, philosophies in regards to how we eat, they're the same. Like even in Okinawa, it's eat local, eat seasonal. Um, Okinawa is the southern island of Japan where karate came from and which also is home to some some um, people that have lived the longest in the world. And it's all very similar. And there's a lot of, um, you know, making sure that you're moving your body, uh, living intuitively, eating intuitively, and experimenting, making sure that, you know, I when I look – when I go back and I, cause I've done so much study, their, their diets were always quite um, small. And I started to realize that I, you know, I might eat Thai one night and then I'd have pizza another day. And then the next day I'd have Mexican. And then, <laughs> and there's a lot of like flavors, spices, um, huge flavor profiles that were constantly moving around. And then the depth to the ingredients that I was eating was massive. And I, had to really pare back on that for a while just to work out what was actually working for me. And so we cook a lot at home also because where we live, there's not a lot of places to eat out. I love eating out, but we tend to, I love cooking. My dad was a, was a really famous chef and he and my mom are both wonderful cooks and cooking for me is a, is a big expression of love. It's, it, it runs very deep for me on an emotional level, um, sharing food and preparing food for people and having presents while doing it. And, you know, I, I'm very ritualistic. So I, I, I have a lot of little rituals that I do around creating beautiful meals. Um, so we sit, you know, um, we always sit at a table, but our table we had custom made and we sit on the floor, um, in the lounge room and it's near the fireplace. And, you know, even in summer, uh, we eat outside as soon as it's warm, we eat outside, but we are either eating outside or we're eating around a fire a lot. Um, we've got a big fire pit in our backyard and, oh, so um, nice. yeah, it's, it's remarkable. We, we really have over the years gotten really clear on the stuff that makes us feel full and feel whole as humans and have systematically gone about finding places to live that fulfill those needs um so let's start to talk about the broad place and how that began and also yeah start start telling us how that began um and then we'll go from there Okay, beautiful. So the Bro Place is, we call it a school because we teach. So it's about providing education. And we teach primarily around three things. We want to share how to be more creative, more conscious, and have more clarity. And the clarity piece is really, really important. I think the creativity piece and the consciousness almost speak for themselves. But the clarity piece for me is also very important. And this is where being very clear about who you are and what your values are in the world and getting clear as well on what consciousness and clarity, um, sorry, and creativity look like for you. So for me, creativity is not necessarily, you know, doing a painting or being an interior designer or, um, you know, doing a live drawing class. It's about an appreciation of beauty and being in flow and putting out into the world creativity as well as pulling it in. So um, in a lot of ancient philosophies, creativity is an energy and it's something that 
um, pushes through the universe and we as humans are seen to be as conduits for this. So if we're very expanded, we have an expanded experience of the world and then we also are able to have more access to creativity. And if we're very contracted, then, you know, like think of tired, stressed, um, frustrated, then we usually, uh, the conduit tightens and there's not a great flow. And my perfect example of this is, you know, when you're on a high, you're having one of those days and you're like, oh, this is the best day and everything's going your way and you have lots of great ideas and conversations flow beautifully and you feel like, you know, life is a beautiful thing to be lived and and then you have a really shitty day and you're like exhausted and you're cranky and everything someone says upsets you and if it could go wrong, it goes wrong and you can't see any solutions to any problems. Like your creativity is drained and, and at its tightest. So I like to teach, um, about creativity through that lens and how do we keep the conduit open? How do we, um, how do we be in flow so that life is a more delightful thing to experience? And I really, I have so many people go, Oh my God. Yeah, that's so cute. I'm not creative. And I, um, <laughs> and I'm like, wow, it's the same for me as I think everyone's creative and I think everyone is good at their core. Um, and everyone has the capacity to be creative. It's not, again, about being a good drawer. The way you put that outfit together, the way you put food on a plate, the way you appreciate it, that the seasons are changing and the colors of autumn leaves delight you to no end. Or, you know, I see people at the beach and they're making little tiny, uh, you know, drawings in the sand and building baby sandcastles next to their towel and you know it's just a free-flowing expression of creativity it's like I want to use my hands to make something here and then you'd ask them and they're like oh yeah I'm not a creative person um so that that is my one of my major missions in life is to get everyone out of the mindset um that they're not and get everyone into the mindset that they can explore creativity it's theirs they don't need anyone's permission to be creative um and then consciousness for me is at its most fundamental level, if you think of, oh, just consciousness, like they're a very conscious person or they're an unconscious person. And a conscious person is someone that is exploring compassion and gratitude and um, being kind and being loving and all of, I think we could pretty easily draw up, like these are the, these are the things I'd like to experience more of in my life. And then uh, also understanding that there's, you know, anger, resentment and frustration and shame and envy and uh, negative thinking, that's all part of being a human too. So if I expand my conscious enough, then I can hold those things without them being the dominant thing. I think a lot of people get confused and go, oh, consciousness is just like, so you must be, you know, um, like la, 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 like a little smurf all the time. And like the, you know, rainbows and unicorns and, you know, you never say anything negative and you never, and what it's actually generating, particularly in Western cultures is, uh, there's a great term called spiritual bypassing, which is an absolute lack of boundaries, a misalignment with values, um, ethics are being completely abandoned in pursuit of trying to be a really conscious person. Like, I'm just going to take all that bad behavior from that person because maybe this is an opportunity for me to be more compassionate as opposed to actually that's a situation that needs a boundary drawn. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So they're the, they're the things that um, we teach essentially. And we teach in uh, all around Australia and in LA and New York and London and India and Japan. And the Broad Place is this, and obviously through digital portals, so that means everywhere. Um, but the Broad Place is in its early phase was a way for us to explore are there other people out there that are interested in the stuff that we're interested in. Because Aaron and I 
you know, we've had, we started 15 businesses between the two of us over our uh, careers and we're, you know, really dynamic in that regard. And we both love like creative processes and sequences. And if you ever want to get upskilled in how to do more stuff, there is a myriad of opportunities available to you. But then if you want to explore, what does it mean to be a good human being? Where do you go? Like if you go, what does being a human being mean for me? It's very hard to know where to look. And you know, there's a million books now on the market and there's a million, um, you know, everyone's a teacher of something these days or, you know, everyone's a new guru of whatever. Um, but in that it's becoming even more confusing. So we originally started the broad place as a way to try to cut through the noise and work with people that were just like us and that didn't want to necessarily wanted to engage with what we, you know, I put spirituality in inverted commas because, it's a hard thing to define. Like people go, oh, spirituality, that means, you know, not wearing any deodorant and, you know, like using hemp oil. And it's like, <laughs> spirituality is just knowing who you are and taking that better, higher grade, high vibrational version of you to the world and exploring that daily. That's spirituality. Um, but it, it does have a lot of, you know, woo-woo connotations to it. Um, but essentially, yeah, it really does. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of people purveying that as well. So I get why people get confused. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it turned Aaron off, um, who's, um, my husband and, you know, is the other half of the broad place. It turned him off that kind of stuff completely. He didn't even want to learn to meditate because he was like, I don't really want to sit nude in the full moon holding a crystal. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, um, so, you know, or like, do, you know, he thought we'd all have to hold hands and sing Kumbaya or, <laughs> um, and you know, there's, I think, well, I know, cause I've met so many people that are just like him that, are interested in this idea of understanding themselves, but have a nervous about what that might look like for them. So we have a very open attitude at the broad place. I, I, there's no lifestyle um, guidelines that we, I couldn't care less if like, I have so much, uh, work to do, keeping my eyes on my own self and behaviors that as someone else's behaviors, like people get really ashamed and they say, I'm really sorry. Like, is it okay if I learn meditation? I eat meat. And I'm like, it's not going to impact you learning meditation. And, um, or like, I love, I would love to learn meditation, but like, I really like gin and tonics and, (laughs) I'm like, great, me too. You know, you can drink a gin and tonic and meditate, but you just don't do both at the same time. Um, and you do your meditation first. It's, you know, I, I think there's so much stigma attached to this kind of, um, these kind of teachings and that you have to, you know, if not shave your head, at yeah. least become, you know, very, very, um, a whole new person. And what we're trying to teach with the broad place is that who you are is wonderful and you just, and meditation will make you a better version of yourself. The you that's already there. Yeah. Because I think it's really disappointing. They're like, Oh no, I really want to be a whole new me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not a lobotomy when you meditate. It just, you tap into the deeper version of you. Yeah. The true version of you, right? The, the, un- yeah. I always say a higher version, but I, I like higher version. I think, and the problem with higher and lower as, as terminology, um, cause we use the term high grade living, which means to find your higher self, your higher vibration, um, and live through that. We all know when we're at our higher selves and then we all know when we're at our lower selves. And I don't want it to sound like a ladder. Um, that's always my, my nervousness. And, and, you know, that's, I was low. So I was down low when I was not my higher self, but there it's really 
taking that into consideration. They're also very apt words because, you know, high vibrational anything, you know, it has a resonance and a quality to it. And we use it as a word like, oh, that's a really high grade paper. Um, you know, when I was in Japan, we're in this beautiful art store and they, you know, they were talking about the different paints and like, these are of a higher grade. And I said, can you tell me what that means? And they were talking about how they were sourced and how they were created. And really what they were describing was this stuff is just mass made and this, this we've put attention and energy and time into and care. Um, and it has a different output as a result. And so I, I like it as a term because I think we can live through that too. So, um, how can, so to learn, I, I kind of want to talk about, um, this wasn't necessarily my intention, but I practice Vedic meditation and it helps me so much. So I want to talk about how um, people can learn through you. So you do have to sit in a workshop. You do have to learn it in person. Yeah. So it goes over a couple of sessions. But, and you, but you teach, usually it's like a three or four day um, sit, right? But only for... It, one or two hours, right? Or two or three hours? Yeah. Yeah. It's a couple of hours a day over three or four days. And it's about an independent practice. So it's not some people have studied and they go, I do an hour a week, once a week for eight weeks. And, um, or they have to keep going to a class to learn. The whole practice is about independence, which I really like because you learn everything you need to learn. And then you're off on your own with ongoing support when you need it. Um, Otherwise, what I found is with all the techniques that I've tried is then it's like, oh, I didn't get to class. I missed my meditation or, um, you know, I hear people say, oh, my phone battery was dying and I couldn't listen to my app. Whereas with this practice, it is, it's been designed to be integrated into a busy life. Um, and I use that word tentatively, um, highly engaged is a better one, but, um, it's designed to be for people that don't live in monasteries and ashrams and, you know, we do live, I mean, I meditate in a different spot all the time. I don't have my special spot in the house even. I like to consider myself to be meditation resilient. Um, and I'll meditate in lots of different places and I meditate in the back of an Uber and I meditate at the airport and I meditate at a meeting room. I'll be doing, you know, a huge conference. Um, and I do a lot of workplace, um, programs and I'll borrow one of their meeting rooms to meditate in, in the middle of the day and you can do it anywhere. And as a result, that means that you actually do it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that. It's just so accessible. It's so it's so ancient, but it's also so modern. It's so easy and accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Accessible, the only challenge is getting in front of the teacher in person. I have to admit that is one of the challenges. But then once you've got your technique you're up and running. So I have students fly in from all over the world into the cities that I teach and then they're up, they're ready to go. They learn in a couple of days and then they have everything they need and they can practice for life. So you mostly teach in Sydney and then, um, or around Australia. And then you mm -hmm. usually, so will you be in, where will you be in the next year? In the next year, we'll be in London, Paris, LA, New York, India, uh, up in Rishikesh. And also there's a few others on the, in the pipeline, but <laughs> they're definite. Okay. So there's, so anyone who's listening to this, who has interest can, and is near any one of those large metropolitan cities can potentially organize to, or start to plan. So I know that you were saying you guys don't quite have your date sorted out yet for 2019. 
No, we've got we've got them tentatively. So our, on our website, which is thebroadplace.org, or I should always also when there's an American, the broad, um, which is how people say the broad when uh, thebroadplace.com.au or thebroadplace.com.au. So if you jump on the website, then usually everything's listed there. But we just have uh, little wait lists, and so students just email us and say, "Hey, I'm in London. Hit me up when you're coming. Give me a couple months' notice, and then we just make sure we keep everyone in the loop." So we've got rolling rolling lists for every city great okay um and just for my own for my own knowledge when will you be in london again i'll be in london in january <laughs> perfect i'll be sure to be january here. 19 good, good good oh my gosh amazing yay that's so exciting yeah and then also I, I'll just I'll quickly mention if anyone wants any sort of beginner we're doing and we're over the next couple of months we're launching um and I should note that it's um it's August 2018 now, but um, over the next couple of months, we're launching so many beautiful online programs around creativity and consciousness, and there'll be guided meditations that are a part of those as well. Um, so if anyone is like, oh God, I can't get to one of those cities, they can just jump on the website and check out all those programs um, and courses that are there. And then and stay inspired as well. We do our daily letter. So if anyone wants to subscribe, they can receive beautiful knowledge and inspiring quotes on how to stay aligned and live a more conscious life. Um, and that's, that's just free and available for everybody. So there's huge amount of resources on our website, um, and meditation meetings that have been recorded and lots of topics and tons of juiciness, um, that we make free and readily available to everybody. So anyone can jump on there at any time. Amazing. So to wrap up, um, I usually like to ask just a couple of questions. One of my favorite questions I like to ask is someone, ironically, after speaking with my therapist last week, um, she's, she's kind of a spiritual therapist. You know, we really work on like my ego and all this kind of stuff, but, um, we agreed that I really need to put the books down for a little while (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and really learn for myself, you know, um, but, uh, I, I mean, I love, I love reading books, especially on spirituality. So were there any, um, are there any books that really have resonated with you in terms of your healing process from the depression or from the anxiety or anything that has any books that really just like, like really stuck with you? Absolutely. Um, okay. So first, if I, if I can also just quickly say that I try to limit, I I read a lot. And if you read for 15 minutes a day, it's 1% of your day. And if you find that I think 1% of the day keeps it in check because you can become like knowledge and spiritually addicted and it can become another outlet for not actually looking at and recognizing. And I don't mean you, I mean everybody, myself included. It can become another way in which all of a sudden we're like, I'm not really checking in with myself. I'm feeling uncomfortable and I'm going to quickly go pick up my book. Um, does that, does that make sense? So I would, um, yeah, so I, I'm also, so I'm very cautious, um, on just making sure that, and I've got a lot of students who I have these conversations with all the time around, let's just take a breather. Let's put the book down. Um, so, but the books that I think have really, really changed my life. And if you, if anyone's interested in, um, reading, we have a huge reading list on our website because I do read a lot. Um, so I'm going to mention a couple that have been, um, influential for me in the last sort of one to two years, because I've been absorbing this for the last 20 years, but Falling into Grace by Adyashanti, I think is an incredible book in describing the way in which the mind works. Um, 
Balance Your Hormones, Balance Your Life by Claudia Welch. Dr. Claudia Welch is also a remarkable book, I think, for anyone trying to understand, oh, why am I thinking like that or what's going on with my body? Um, also, um, on the creativity front, uh, or the, on the on the education front, actually, The Art of Learning by Joshua Waitzkin is an absolutely incredible book. Um by Shri M, and we'll put notes right in there with the podcast because I can. I'll send you all. The, so by Shri M, um, uh, Apprentice to a Himalayan Master is also a book that I absolutely loved, and it, it's a really nice fit with Yogananda's autobiography, The Yogi. Just as a really interesting, interesting book, um, I would recommend reading absolutely anything that Ramdas has done. Uh, I I love all of his books. I love his podcast, um, Be Here Now, where all his talks um, have been recorded. Anything by David Hawkins is really brilliant. Um, I also really like How to Cook Your Life by Dogen Zenji. It's a, it's, it's obscure. Um, it's really obscure. Uh, I would, but I would really recommend it as a book on how, so basically the t- uh, tensions who are the um, Zen cooks in the monasteries, it's a, it's a guide for them, but it's very beautiful in how to be present to everything. Um, another book, uh, The Untethered Soul by Michael A. Singer, incredible. Um, I like all books by Michael Neal. He wrote The Inside Out Revolution and The Space Within is also really good. I mean, I'm going to go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I know how much you like your books. So I love that. And of course, now I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go on Amazon. I'm going to order these just as my, just as my therapist told me to put my, literally put my books away. She's like, put them in. Yeah, put them down, down, put them down. Um, Incredible. Oh, actually one more, The Five Invitations by Frank Ostaseski is a must. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good to know. Um, uh, okay. So the last couple of questions here, um, I always ask this as kind of a loaded question, but what do you feel has been your greatest lesson through your experiences, through, through your struggles? Oh, my greatest lesson to be compassionate with myself. That's a great one. I mean, that's a big, one. I am so kind and generous in regards to holding space for others. And I can be such an asshole to myself. And I've, I believe I follow, um, so a lot of the Vedic lineage is around non-duality, which is that there is one thing, one consciousness, and that how we are internally is how we're projecting outwards. And if you want a really non-spiritual way of looking at this, I think Michael Neal does a really good job on this. He calls it inside-out thinking, uh, or the inside-out way of being in the world. And I've really had to shine a light on the fact that I, on one hand, can hold space with so much grace for others, and then I'm just a dick. Like I do, I can hear myself speaking to myself sometimes. And I would, I have a little, um, a tool, which is if you wouldn't say it to a four-year-old, don't say it to yourself. And I think the way, if we can all hold that, I think the things that we say inside to ourselves in the private quiet of our mind, it can get really hideous. And we would never, ever, I mean, I, you know, I've got a daughter, she's 12 now, and I know her at four and that that beauty and innocence and curiosity. And some of the things I would say to myself, I would never in a pink fit have ever said to her. Um, and so that is my way of keeping myself in check is to be more compassionate. Yeah. And lastly, what does mental health mean to you? Oh, I think health in general means to be in balance, 
um, and to be flexible and to sort of avoid any rigidity and to be in alignment with nature. So I think mental health is the same. I think that there are there's seasons in nature and there's seasons with ourselves, with our lives and our minds. We have winters, we have summers, um, we have spring, we have autumn. There's time to regenerate, there's time to nourish, there's time for growth, there's time for, you know, bunkering down the hatches, uh, there's time for letting go. You know, you don't see trees having a meltdown because their leaves are dropping, um, you know, frantically wringing their fingers, going, no, leaves, where are you going? Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, you don't see the trees whinging about, it's hot and my leaves are dry, you know. So I think that for me, making sure that my my mind is in attune with an attunement to what's happening um in a very natural way in a way that's very not necessarily healthy as in like clean living but in making sure that I'm not adding to anything does that make sense like trying to keep it as as natural as possible without adding and layering on a lot of like not genetically modifying my mind does that make sense yeah it does I've never used that word before. I don't even know why I use that analogy. <laughs> it means, um, I mean, like trying to keep it in its purest, in its most natural state without, you know, um, uh, grafting on too many beliefs and that aren't mine and gra- like, you know, splicing together things that just aren't naturally me and don't work. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is so beautiful. I'm so glad. I hope it's of um, some inspiration um, to anyone to anyone that's listening. It, it's just this. These are these are these are big conversations. And um, if I can say that, I think one of the most major things that I have been able to do is to speak positively about negative experiences because they're all. I really truly believe that the universe does deliver every single opportunity for us, even when we brand it as a bad experience, it's an opportunity for us to understand ourselves and it's delivered to us as a gift so that we can learn and grow. And if I hadn't have had all the stuff that I would look back on like personal depression and a divorce and, um, you know, God, I went bankrupt and I, you know, and all the stuff that, you know, my little brother and everything that went on, it wouldn't land me here now. You know, I would have missed out on so much experience and growth. So, um, being able to speak about not necessarily being able to speak truthfully about things that feel negative, but also being able to see the enrichment, the enrichment and the opportunity that they deliver is just being key. Yeah. I think it's really easy for us to try to, to, to think that we need to like only be thinking a certain way or that, um, our negative thoughts or our negative experiences are things that we should, that we need to let go of. But, um, last week, you know, as a part of my spiritual experimenting, I took part in a cacao ceremony, which is a very kind of mild plant medicine um, experience. It was it was beautiful. It was a beautiful experience, um, very heart opening. But something that the shaman who was leading it said, she was like, as we were just saying, it's easy to judge ourselves and want to let go of our stories when what we need to do is actually embrace them and and know that there's lessons in everything and that they're is light in the dark and um to just to to be able to take them and to learn from them is such a big and beautiful thing to do and to learn when to pick them up and also when to put them down I think because I know I've had periods where I became my story and we're not our stories we're so much bigger and deeper than that we really we need to we need to understand the story and to own the story but and we need to live through moments of it but it's not who we are we get to decide what that is we get to make a choice for that and we are 
there's a soul within us and a spirit and consciousness that flows and runs through every cell in our body. And we also want to embrace that too. I think it's so, so I think there's such a, there needs to be a bigger embracing. There needs to be a smudging of the lines, you know, almost between all of these things opposed, as opposed to them being dealt with in, in separation. Like over here is my, um, my work life and over here is my personal life and over here is the, the life that goes on in my head and over here is the life that goes on with me socially and over here is my spiritual life. And, you know, they're all one thing. And we, if we can find the, the truth within all of that, then all of a sudden the whole thing becomes really beautiful. Well, I will put all of the info for Jack um, and her books and all of the information that we've spoken about in the show notes. But Jack, thank you again so much. This was just so nice. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Joan. I've put all information from this episode in the show notes. So if you forgot to write down the name of a book or a doctor, you can find it there. I want to thank my editor, Clay Carnell, who has been so patient with me. I want to thank Mike Lachome for providing the theme music that he so beautifully and thoughtfully created. I want to thank Jen Perron for creating our amazing logo. And I want to thank all of you for listening. Thank you so much, truly from the bottom of my heart. 